0: Well, good morning, friends. It's good to be with you. So a few years ago, I got uh, two very different emails within uh, four hours of each other. At 8.40, 44 a.m., Steve wrote me this email that began this way. Hi, George. I want to share something with you, and then the two words every pastor loves to hear, in love. <laughs> Steve was mad at me. He was mad at others, and he was leaving our church. Less than four hours later, at 12.24 p.m., Sandra sends me this email that began, I just want to thank you for your grace yesterday in church. So which one is it? The truth is it's both. In 2001, I began this systematic reading, devotional reading of the scripture, where we would read through the Old Testament once, the New Testament twice, over a year. And one of the gifts that came with this regular reading, particularly of the letters of Paul, is that I began to make a little list in my journal of what I didn't know what else to call but the raw emotions of ministry, as this beautiful graphic illustrates. As I was reading these 13 letters of Paul twice a year, I'd noticed these patterns, these little, what I want to call sound bites that give us a peek into the soul of the apostle, and these are like weighty emotional statements that I find twenty centuries later very applicable to our lives as those who pursue ministry in the twenty first century. Um, I've recently celebrated thirty four years in ministry and uh, twenty two years pastoring the same church in Southwest Florida. Then uh, this past week, and 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 these. Emotions are still very real for me today. And so what I want to do this morning, I I just sense the Spirit asking me to share some of these with you, is look at six of these. Six of these little sound bites. For for those of us who are in and preparing for ministry, I'm confident there are many more that I will add to the list. So here they are. The first one. uh, The unending pressure of pastoral leadership. The unending pressure of pastoral leadership. Um, In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives this beautiful litany of the hardships that he has endured for the sake of the mission of Jesus. He's experienced beatings, he's been to jail, he's been shipwrecked, he's had his life threatened, he's gone through hunger and thirst and hypothermia. All of these things are on the list. It's quite an impressive list. But quite frankly, as a very comfortable American living in the suburbs of southwest Florida, suffering for Jesus there, with my swimming pool it's kind of hard for me to identify with these things. But verse 28 always gets me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. Why don't you read this with me? Then beside all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. So after Paul lists all of these things he's gone through, shipwrecks, hungers, beatings, he saves the best for last. And he says, oh, and by the way, There's this daily burden for the concern of the church. When you begin to shepherd a congregation, there's this unending pressure. It's relentless. It never gives up. It's this pressure to care for those whom God has given you charge. And I think it's because those of us who are called into ministry, we handle the holy things. Can I suggest to you, don't believe all of the hype out there about how hard and long pastors work it's not the length of our days that make ministry hard it's the daily burden it's this kind of i don't know spiritual load that we have to carry the unending pressure of pastoral ministry that that's one of these raw emotions of ministry here's the second one the heartbreaking desire for spiritual growth the heartbreaking desire for spiritual growth um, throughout Paul's letters, Paul regularly admonishes his Christ followers in these little fledgling missionary outposts to grow up in Christ. As a matter of fact, I love uh, persecuting my United Methodist church family, reminding them to take their rose-colored glasses off when they read the letters of Paul in the book of Acts. The church was messed up then. Newsflash, is messed up now. Everybody is dysfunctional. And, and Paul prays, though, letter after letter he prays for them to know the surpassing love and the grace of Jesus more and more he wants them to grow up the best text is Galatians four nineteen for me oh my dear children I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives Paul was likely single and likely never had a child uh, with his wife if he had been married and And yet he he uses the metaphor of a woman giving birth. How ironic. Eugene Peterson translates this this way in the message. Do you know how I feel right now? And will feel until Christ's life becomes visible in your lives like a mother in the pain of childbirth. You know, as a pastor, I would tell you uh, part of the raw emotion that I wrestle with every single day is spiritual immaturity. And it hurts me as a pastor. I wonder, what's all the work about? And yet you still act like such children. John Ed Matheson one time said to me several decades ago, he said, leading a church today is like running an adult daycare center. (laughs) And one of the first times I experienced this was about four or five years into our ministry there in Cape Coral. The church was really growing. and, And we found out that we could sit another 120 people in the church if we took out the pews and put in chairs. You'd have thought I took Jesus out of the Trinity. We lost several families on that one. It always hurts. Let me just say this. It always hurts when people leave your church. If it doesn't, I would be worried. Uh, Recently, um, over the last several years, um, I realized after about 18 years in the same church that the church had grown old with me. And we needed to make significant changes in staff and worship and other things to reach the next generation. And when we did that, friends that we had made changes 15 years before to reach them and their children were unwilling to make those changes to reach their grandchildren. There's this longing in every good pastor's heart to see people grow up. Here's the third one. This one really hurts me, the unrealistic pressure on the pastoral family. Now Paul was single and yet ironically, he wrote extensively about marriage and the family. Now, some of the toughest words written by Paul are found in his pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus, particularly around the qualifications for elders and deacons in the first church. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, he writes these words, he must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? When Nathan turned 16, he went crazy. My young boy, he started acting out. Worse yet, he started using cocaine. Through high school, it got worse. He got arrested a few days after he turned 18. It turned into a full-fledged addiction to opiates. And his mental illness was something his mother and I could not manage. And a few kind-hearted Christians came to me with this verse and suggested it was time for me to leave. It was an unrealistic expectation because I now know these 15, 16 years later that mental illness doesn't care, addictions don't care, that you're the pastor of the fastest-growing United Methodist Church in America. It just doesn't care. My friend Bishop Dick Wills, when he was my mentor, said that if you were over 40 and you have children, you will have a broken heart. There is this unrealistic pressure that sometimes we feel in ministry on our families. How about this one? The never-ending task of protecting unity. You see, I want to argue, uh, if you look at Paul's letters, that his major theme might not be justification by faith, but it might be unity. I look at uh, one example, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and in purpose. You've heard it before, but let me remind you again that the sheep sometimes bite the shepherd. But maybe worse yet is the sheep sometimes bite other sheep. And there are days that in my work around Grace Church I feel more like an MMA referee than a pastor. As I watch believers who sit in the same worship services and hear the same sermons on Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 21 at least once a year who have no idea how to resolve conflict in the life of the church. And we as leaders are charged with not getting in the mess with them but seeking to lead them to protect the unity of the church. Here's one that knocks on my door regularly. The insidious temptation to compare with others. I've said to our congregation that comparison isn't of the devil. Comparison is the devil. I look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. I think the Apostle Paul understood this. But I don't consider myself inferior in any way to these super apostles who teach such things. There was this group of super apostles, I guess they called them, that were challenging Paul and his authority. Let me just remind you that you will always find somebody who's doing better than you in ministry, and you can feel really bad about yourself. And you can always find somebody who's doing worse than you in your ministry, and you can get really cocky. There's this insidious temptation to compare ourselves with others one of the things that shook me a number of years ago was when I was reading the parable of the talents that Jesus gives and if you read the parable of the talents I think that what Jesus is trying to teach us is that grace isn't fair and you just better get over it God gives some people five talents some two and some one and then when the master comes back he takes the talent from the guy that dug a hole and stuck it in the ground the guy that got one and who buried it and he gives it to the guy not who had two and doubled to four, but the guy who already had 10, so he now had 11. That's just not fair. But God does those kinds of things. There's going to be the gal or the guy down the street who's going to do better than you. And one of the things we have to learn to do is to celebrate the victory of others even when it's difficult for us. There's this insidious temptation to compare ourselves with others. Let me give you one last one. And then I'm going to give you a little hope at the end. I know some of you are ready to slit your wrists right now. <laughs> I sold the insurance company for this? All right. The agonizing heartache of personal betrayal. So Paul's in prison at the end of his life. And he says, he so often does at the end of his letters, he gets very personal. 2 Timothy versus, uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, he says, Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and he's gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. You know, whether it was the sorrow of a ministry partner who abandoned the faith or the heartache of sending a ministry partner to serve in another place, Paul understood the anguish of feeling abandoned. In 1999, our church had experienced its greatest year of growth. We had grown by 45% in worship attendance in one year. And my worship pastor had an affair with somebody on our worship team. I was a young pastor. I was a, I'm a first-time senior pastor, still in my first appointment. And I thought, it's all coming down. I thought, this is the end of it. We're just a blip on the screen. It'll, it'll never, it'll never recover. And yet I discovered in those days that the church is of God and it will last through eternity. As God, indeed, even in the midst of that harsh, awful personal abandonment, this sense of betrayal by a dear friend, a friend that I had cautioned, a friend that I had warned, a friend that I had given boundaries to, but a friend who chose Sin over his ministry. You'll experience it. This and other kinds of personal abandonment. So some of us are thinking, well, why do ministry? Why stay in ministry? And I just want to remind you of two things. They're not profound. First, you are called. You are called. I'm called. You know, one of the things I noticed in reading Paul's letters over and over again is that he regularly went back to the Damascus Road. He regularly went back to that experience in Damascus, where he on the road to Damascus, where he experienced this call of Jesus. For me, I have to go back to the back row of a physics class in 1980 when the Lord whispered in my soul, what brings you joy? And I told the Lord, what brings me joy is teaching eighth grade Sunday school classes. You know you're called to the ministry when you find joy <laughs> teaching eighth grade Sunday school class. And when Nathan was at his worst, and when Gary had an affair, and when people left my church because we took out pews and put in chairs, I had to go back to the last row at a physics class in Valencia Community College and I had to remember. Jesus called me to this. So will you. Here's the second one. It's what's at stake. That's why why we we do this thing called ministry. It's what's at stake. It's seeing the glory of God revealed through ordinary people. It's, It's the stories of life, life transformation. It's the guy that recently came to our Friday night Celebrate Recovery who after spending 25 years lost in an addiction to opiates, testified this past Friday, I never knew life could be so good with Jesus. That's what's at stake. It's seeing drug addicts get radically wrecked by Jesus. It's seeing wealthy men who have their ladder leaning against the wrong building give it all up to serve Exceptional entrepreneurs our special needs ministry to young adult special needs. It's seeing men and women who abandon it all for the sake of the call. That's what's at stake. It's to the glory of God and for the good of people. So you'll go through these raw emotions. Some of you are going through them now. I just came by to remind you. You're called. And it's worth it. Jesus, I am so humbled and honored to stand in this holy and sacred place and to share with these my precious friends here at Asbury Seminary. It's such a humbling thing to share from your word the raw emotions of this thing that we've all been called to, your service. Would you remind us when the emotions are high, That indeed you have called us, and what's at stake? And now, as we turn to your table, Lord, would you feed us? For we desperately need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody agreeing said.